Let's open our Bibles to First uh, Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 9 tonight. We're also going to take communion, which I'm really looking forward to. Can't think of a better thing for us to do. And uh, But first, just a few announcements. Uh, there are some gingerbread house kits available out in the cafe. Uh, they are kits, and you can um, make a donation in the box that's next to it, and everything is provided for you, all the materials. All you've got to do is follow the directions and seek to best the, the demonstration that you see there. The, uh, they, they put like a demonstration of, of what it looks like when it's completed, and they challenge you to, to do it better. And so there's the gauntlet. Okay, so um, please consider that uh, for your holiday, your Christmas needs. Uh, Let's see. Men, if there are any of you that are interested in helping us with the snow shoveling this season, uh, your help would be much appreciated. There is a sign-up sheet on the front counter. And really what it entails is on uh, days or evenings that we have a service, when it is snowy, uh, we like to show up, uh, you know, half hour, 45 minutes before the service and, and just uh, shovel the front walk, put down uh, salt. We got, we got all the stuff that you need. We've even got a snowblower, and we've got uh, tons, I, I think at least a ton or two, of rock salt. And uh, we got plenty of rock salt um, and shovels and things like that. So if you can, uh, just sign up on the front counter if, you, if that's something that the Lord would encourage you to get involved in. Also on December 18th, there's going to be a family night here at the church. It's a Friday night, December 18th. And basically it's going to be about assembling gifts for the homeless. And they're uh, collecting toiletry items for men and women, such as shampoo, body lotion, deodorants, etc., along with side dishes and desserts. I'm not really sure about this, so if you have any questions about this, you're going to have to see... Uh, Henrietta Binda, because I don't know um, how you do that um, unless it's the day of or something. So those kinds of sides, non-perishable sides. Oh, I just learned something. You know, it is possible uh, for me to learn. I've learned something new. Uh, Actually, (laughs) so non-perishable side dishes, side uh, things, uh, that'd be helpful. Uh, and you can see in the fellowship hall, there is a, a table out there with a couple of different bins, and they're, they're marked out there, and you can add to those things as you see fit. But, um, and you're also welcome to come on, um, it's going to be, all of these things are going to be distributed on December 19th, which is a Saturday as part of the Father's Heart Bus Ministry, which we support as a church, as a fellowship. It's a wonderful ministry. You can go to fathersheart.org and, and get more information on how to get involved in that. If you want to really get out and minister to people and do some very practical things, that's a really good ministry to do it. And um, so I'd encourage you to consider that. And there is a sign-up sheet on the front counter for all of these things, too. And even though it may seem like a ways away, it'll come up on us quicker than you think, but we are uh, going to Israel in February. February 28th through March 12th, uh, Calvary Chapel of Finger Lakes hosts a, uh, uh, a tour, and so you're more than welcome to get on board with that. Um, they have plenty of information. You can go to ccfingerlakes.org to... Uh, download a uh, registration form and an itinerary, or you can go on our front counter, and in the little plexiglass thing that we have there on the counter, there is a sheet that has the itinerary on the front side and uh, the cost and when those things need to be, deposits need to be entered and all that stuff, and then on the reverse side is a registration. If you do decide to go, if you can just put Calvary Chapel of Rochester up at the top, uh, that'll help them to know what church you come from. I really haven't been mentioning that, but that'll be helpful um, if you could do that, please. But uh, please consider going. Pray about going. It isn't cheap, but it'll be the best. It'll be the best thing you've ever experienced as far as going out of the country. I guarantee it, without even a hesitation. So please consider that. All right, let's open our Bibles now to First Samuel chapter nine. Last week we looked at the 8th chapter and we saw that uh, really the 7th chapter was really the end, not really so much the end, but just as far as his, uh, 
his influence, we know that Samuel really consisted, uh, his life and ministry really consisted of the first seven chapters of the book. And it doesn't mean that Samuel died at, uh, you know, at the end of chapter 7. His ministry continued on, but it was dovetailed with that of King Saul, Israel's first king. And we're going to see Samuel still continuing, uh, moving onward in his uh, ministry. God uses Samuel to anoint Saul as king of Israel. And we're also going to see later on that Samuel will also anoint David as a young boy, young teenager, um, uh, after Saul's reign. And so what we're looking at this evening, we are well into, or I'm sorry, we're not well into, we just began really the life and ministry, uh, the reign of Saul um, of Gabeah, the Saul of Kish, who was his father's name was. And we're going to really look at Saul's life really from this chapter until the end of chapter 15. And so last week when we looked, we, we saw that Israel had really demanded a king. Samuel, as he began to get older, naturally there is a, a passing of the baton. And that is never an easy thing to do. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes that baton doesn't always get handed off in a very good way. Sometimes there's a fumble <laughs> they're handing the baton off, and the baton drops flat on the ground, and there's not a, a nice handoff. There's not a, an easy transition. And that's true in some churches as well. Uh, churches who plan ahead of time, like Pastor Jeff. He did a really great job, I think, in that. Little did he know, and I didn't know it at the time either, but I didn't... You know, for the years that I was able to serve under him, I had no idea that God was grooming me for that position. I was very content and very happy uh, leading in worship, and I still love to do that when I can. But the way it happened and how the the baton was handed off was very, it it was really a wonderful thing. And and it was something I think our fellowship as as a whole was very thankful for, the way he did it and how it happened. And we see that in other churches too. Calvary Chapel, the Finger Lakes, had a similar, uh, a wonderful experience in that. But not all churches, not all ministries have that commonality. Sometimes there's great upheaval. Sometimes, the you know, 75% of the church leaves. That was my great fear, is that once Jeff, uh, Pastor Jeff left, that the church would leave with him. <laughs> but I was glad to hear that they didn't, and they stayed. And... Um, and so that, that's been a real blessing. And we see the same thing in, in Samuel's life. As he gets old, older, his sons began to be involved in the ministry. And his sons ruled in Beersheba, his son named Joel, and another one was Abijah. But they weren't really good men. They weren't, they weren't uh, bad men in the sense of uh, um, Eli's sons. Remember Eli had two wicked sons. They weren't as wicked as, as they were, but they still were in it for gain, and they were still in it for themselves. And the people got fed up with Samuel's sons. They said, Samuel, you're old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. And we looked at that last week, and what a tragedy that is and was, because Samuel was a, an exemplary character. He had a sterling character, a wonderful man of God, obedient from his youth all the way up to his old age, and yet his sons didn't walk in his ways. There's no guarantees, is there? It'd be nice if there was a guarantee that when a man or woman has a child, they, they grow that child up, you know, like, the, like the verse that says in Proverbs, you know, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. There, there is a promise there, and I believe that that is true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your child is not going to go through some really awful things before they finally come back. Because when a child has a foundation in the scriptures and the word of God, it becomes part of them, and they remember the peace. They remember the, the, the unity they had with their family. They remember those things. And when they go out and finally are free like a bird, and they can go soar and spread their wings and fly away for a season and find themselves in a great mess... They know to come back because it's the only thing they've ever known. And now they know for a surety that what the Word of God said was true. 
and they find out for themselves, based on their own experience, that what God said was true. And I've noticed that in my own life. And unfortunately, it's just a pattern that keeps on continuing. No matter how hard we try, the human heart needs to come to an understanding that it's without God, it is completely hopeless. Apart from God, the human soul is completely hopeless. Apart from Christ. But with Christ, all things are possible. He can take the worst person imaginable and turn them into a saint. We see that over and over again throughout history. Some of the worst offenders in our country, in our history of the world, many of them have come to faith at the end of their life. In our inglory right now, when many would say, if that's the way God is, I don't want to be in heaven. If he can forgive a man like Jeffrey Dahmer, who we understand that in his last, um, last few years of his life, I don't know exactly how many years he had, but they say that he gave his heart to Christ, and this was somebody who repulsed most of us, if we heard, actually all of us. But yet, if his confession is true, he's in glory. And there are some who have a hard time with that. And I can imagine even a, a person who is a husband or, or, or a, a mom or a dad of a daughter whom he committed a crime against. I can imagine them saying, if that's the God, if that is who God is, I don't want to go and meet him. But to me, that's good news because that means that there's hope for every soul, no matter what you do. God is a God of forgiveness, amen? And so that's exactly what Samuel got caught up in. His sons weren't walking in his ways, and the people demanded a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. And, you know, why does everybody want to be like everybody else? Why can't we just be ourselves? Why can't we just be who God made us? To me, the greatest joy in my life was figuring out who I was. Now, I don't, I don't think I'm anything, to be honest with you, but I feel very comfortable now in my own skin. And it took many years for me to get to that place because I, my identity is not in something I made myself. My identity is in Christ. And therefore, I have the perfect confidence, not perfect confidence, but I have great confidence, not in me, but in him. And I can rest. The journey is over for me. I know where I'm going, no matter what happens. And I pray that you have that same conviction And I pray if you're still searching and trying to find yourself, start with Jesus. Because it begins with him, it continues with him, and it will end with him. And you will be the more blessed for it. Amen? And so they wanted a king. They wanted to be like the nations around them. And God gave them the request of their heart. You remember last week the the title of the message was, Be Careful What You Ask For. And God knew what they wanted. He gave them what they wanted. They really didn't spell it out. You'll notice this as if you look in chapters 8 and chapter 9. They didn't actually bring out a laundry list and say, we want a king who's tall and handsome. We want a king who seems to have all these abilities. And he's, he looks, he's a beautiful man, can speak well, came to all, you know, through all the right colleges, Ivy League, you know, Yale and Oxford and Harvard. You know, he's got all, this, all these pedigrees, all these skills and abilities. Man, he's a handsome guy, even drives a nice car. They didn't come out and say that, but God knew their heart, and he gave them exactly what they were hoping for because most people, unfortunately, they look at the outward appearance. They look at the outward appearance, and they size a person up based on what they see, and they come to conclusions. We judge every single day. Did you know that? We look at people, and we automatically come to a conclusion. And sometimes those feelings, those, um, that judgment may be true. It's, it's, it's not a good thing to do because I'm always confronted with the exact opposite of that, when I have somebody pegged to be a certain way and I find out they're, they're nowhere near that at all, but my eyes, based on what I see in front of me, I come to conclusions. And there's reasons why we come to conclusions, because of history. History in our life, we've come to, uh, to, to know that this kind of person in this kind of situation probably is like this, probably is like that, and there may be some truth, but we can never put a stamp on somebody and say, this is who you are, because they will always defy it. Sort of like mercury on a flat surface. It's just going to kind of go all over the place, and you're not going to be able to, to, to figure it out, know where it's going. So we should never judge a book by its cover. But yet they looked at Saul. They looked at their own hearts, and they were like, we want a man who is taller than all of us. And he was head and shoulders, taller than anybody else. Good-looking guy. 
But yet what they didn't know, what they couldn't see, was what was going on inside the man that only God can see. And therein lies the discrepancy. I always look at the outside. God says, I don't look at the outside. I look at the inside. That's how God can take someone so small and insignificant like David. I love David's character because he was just the, the, the youngest, the eighth, the youngest son. Out there in the field with the, shep, with the sheep, nobody wanted to be a shepherd. It was a lowly thing to do, and yet David was very content being out there. And I imagine with seven other brothers, older brothers, he was very happy to be out there with those sheep. Just talking to the Lord, worshiping the Lord out there in the fields. But they wanted a king, and God gave them their desire. And unfortunately, Saul, we'll see throughout these next chapters, that Saul started off relatively well, but he was a failure as a king because he wasn't obedient. He wasn't, he wasn't obedient to what God asked him to do and what God wanted him to do. He didn't listen. And in any position of leadership, a, a leader has to be able to listen. He's got to be willing. He's got to be teachable. He's got to know that there's accountability. There's someone over him. He's not an island unto himself. He has to be accountable to others. No one has that ability. And the people who think they do are just fooling themselves. We are all accountable. We should be accountable. And so let's look at verse 1 here in chapter 9. So the decision had been made. We want a king. God says, okay, I'm going to pick one for you because I know your heart and I'm going to give you exactly what you want. But God told Samuel to tell the people the behavior of a king. And he lists it for us in verse uh, 11 of chapter 8. What did he say to them? He said, this, is, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. You really want a king? I, I, it wasn't good enough that I could just rule over you like I did with the judges. I could just tell the judge what was going on, and the judge could convey that. And you didn't need an army. You were already an army. You went out and you fought many battles. You didn't need anything. And I was the one, the one thing that all you needed, and I, I'm not enough anymore. Is that, the, is that the case, Israel? You know, that's what God was saying to them. And then he rehearsed for them the behavior of the king that they're going to get. And he told them, he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. And this is in uh, chapter 8, verse 11. This will be the behavior. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to his horsemen. Some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow the ground and reap his harvest. Some will make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will even take your daughters to be perfumers, to be cooks, to be bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will give a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will even take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in the day because of the king whom you have chosen for yourselves. Notice the accountability there. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refuse to obey. There's the obstinate, stubborn heart of man. <laughs> you know, if I was given that list of things, this is what's going to happen. You know, they'd never known that before, have they? Had they had any problems before conquering their enemies? No, they didn't. But now as a result of their will being done, their, they, their want, their desire to be like everybody else, they're unhappy, they're... they're um, unsettledness. God is saying, I'll give you what you want, but here's the consequence. Here's what's going to happen. And yet they can say they would not. Nevertheless, they refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles and notice, and Samuel heard all the words of the people. He repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Hear or heed their voice. Heed their voice, Samuel, and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man, every man go to his city. And I like what it says there. It says, God told him, Heed the voice of the people. Does that word ring a bell? Probably not in English. But remember in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt worship the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. He, yeah, I, I butchered the verse there, but you hear, O Israel. The word hear is Shema. That word Shema means hear with the intent of doing something about it. In other words, you hear something, but there's obedience attached to it. It's not like you just hear something and then go, oh, that's nice, and move on. No, you hear it, and you act upon it, and you move forward with it, right? And that's really what he's saying to Samuel right here. He says, heed their voice, Shema their voice. Obey them. Obey them, Samuel, because they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me. Or they have rejected you, but don't worry, they rejected me first. And so we get into chapter 1. It says, Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And literally when it says of power, this means a man of wealth. He was a man of substance. He had goods. He had, he had servants. And notice, he had a choice and a handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so here's a guy who sticks out like a sore thumb. Wherever he goes, he's taller than everybody else. But he's also handsome too, which he's got something going for him. But this word, this name, Saul, literally means asked or desired, and that's exactly what he is. I find it interesting that these names of people fit oftentimes their role in, the, in, in history, in Israel's history. His name meant asked or desired, and he was what the people wanted. And again, God knows the heart of man. He knows exactly what kind of leader they were looking for, and he gave Saul to them. And this is actually the first mention of Saul in the Bible, Saul of Kish anyway. And notice that he's handsome, he's tall. And unfortunately, even today, we put qualities, we look for qualities in a leader. We look for, are they handsome? Do they dress well? Can they speak really well? And other things that we look for, we look at the outward appearance. But history proves that some of the people that nobody really cared for were the best leaders. When they looked at them the first time, they're like, the Lord, you know, there's nothing that can happen with this person. But the Lord loves to choose the base things of the world to confound the wise. He loves to take the things that are of no rapport with the world, and he likes to magnify those things. And it's safe, because then that vessel will never say, I did this, or I did that. They can say, it is only by grace that I'm here today. And whenever we give glory to God, boy, he can do great things through a vessel who doesn't look at themselves, who doesn't really think of themselves as being very much. And see, that's the way Saul started out. We're going to see this, that in his beginnings, he was very humble. But as he began to go on a couple years into his ministry, his devotion and obedience began to, um, to fail. But notice how easily Samuel was impressed by his natural looks and stature. And this admiration... Caused uh, also occurred when he presented Saul. Later on, we're going to look in uh, probably next week in chapter ten, when Saul um, present. I'm sorry, when Samuel presented Saul as king before the people, it says in First Samuel chapter ten verse twenty three. It says that they ran and they brought him. They brought uh, Saul, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, "Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? That there is none like him among all the people." And so all the people shouted and said, long live the king. And this was Saul. This was Saul. And again, we can never make that mistake of looking on the outward. We see later on when Samuel would also go after, Saul, after Saul's reign begins to wane. God tells him to go to Jesse and to anoint one of his sons. And you remember, it's recorded for us. We'll get there. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel goes before Jesse's sons and he sees, uh, so it was when they came, all of his sons came, that Samuel looked at Eliab, who was the oldest, and he said to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He was a tall guy, handsome, probably just like Saul. And Samuel had this thing with the outward appearance, didn't he? 
We, saw, we, we see it here, and we're also going to see it later on when he goes to visit Jesse's sons. He looks at Eliab, and he says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And boy, I wish I could do that more consistently. You know, to look at people for who they really are in Christ rather than my own presuppositions, my own mold that I put them in. We all do it. We put people in pigeonholes, in boxes. Oh, you're just like this. My experience shows me that this person is just like this. And so you, in your mind, you take them and you stick them in that little, that little pigeonhole. And we've got to be so careful. We have to be so careful. So, Kish, he had a handsome and choice son, back in our text now, verse 2 again. And his name was Saul, again, a handsome man. Verse 3, it says, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of your servants with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. Go look for the donkeys. And... Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, let me read to you First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 16 again. You might just want to make a note off to the margin of your Bible, First Samuel 16, verse 11 and 12. But let me read it to you, and it'll make sense in just a moment. It says, And Samuel said to Jesse, we're going to see this later on, Are all the young men here? Are all your sons here, Jesse? And, and then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. David, that's who he was. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in. And notice the description of David. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes, and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. The one that Samuel didn't choose. You know, he's, he's there, and you can just see the whole reign of Saul's kids. You know, the oldest, Eliab, and then going all the way down to the seventh, and and he's like, and the Lord's not telling him which one it is. And he gets to the seventh, and he's like, okay, there's got to be somebody else. Where is he? Well, he's out uh, picking up sheep droppings. He's out there in the field. You don't really want him, do you? Yeah, we really do want him. And I think Saul or Samuel in his heart's going, I did it again. <laughs> I'm always thinking of the, the tallest and the most beautiful. And so they bring David, and then the rest is history. You know, Samuel anoints him. But the reason I bring that up is because we look at these two verses here in, in 1 Samuel 16. And again, not to make too big of a deal of this, but Saul and David were both handsome. And yet the first time we hear of Saul, what is he doing? He's looking for his father's herd of donkeys. And then the first time that we see David um, here in 1 Samuel 16, which we're going to get to, what, what is he doing? He's among the flock. Samuel's looking for something that's lost, but where is David? They're both handsome, but one's looking, searching, and the other one is among, with the sheep. The sheep hear his voice. They know his voice. I remember being in uh, Bethlehem back in 2011. We went to Israel, and we stopped by this. Um, we were out in the middle, of the, out in the sticks in, in Israel, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and we got into the precincts of Bethlehem, and a lot of rolling fields, really beautiful land, and the bus just stopped. And we stopped because we saw a shepherd, a young teenage boy and a young teenage girl. And they were out shepherding this huge flock of sheep out there. And they had the staff, you know, they had the ragged clothes. They were Palestinian kids. And it was so cool because we got out of the bus. And, of course, they're thinking, cha-ching. And so they come over to us. And everyone's giving them a dollar, you know. And these kids are getting loaded. And, uh, and they're, they're so excited. And they're, they're, people are taking pictures with the sheep, you know. People are doing selfies with the sheep, you know. And, and we had this blast. And it was so wonderful to see them. But I remember one of the things that the, the young boy did as he was walking toward the bus. And, and again, it's just a beautiful day. And... A, you know, field full of sheep. And he goes, he makes this funny sound out of his mouth. And the sheep automatically run to him. And he'd keep walking, and he'd make another sound, and they'd all gather around him. And then there we were all together, among, you know, all these American tourists around the sheep, you know, and everyone's having a blast. And it was a really sweet moment, honestly. But they knew his voice. They knew his voice. And David was among the sheep. 
He was among the people in a sense, right? He was among them, and, and, and yet Saul, and again, not to make too big of a deal of this, but I just like the parallel. One is kind of aloof looking for something, and the other one is where he should have been all along, doing what he should be doing. And my point is, is that David was a true shepherd. We're going to see that Saul was not really a true shepherd. He started off well, but he didn't finish well. And even in uh, verse 5 of our text uh, here this evening, it says, When they had come to the land of Ziph, uh, looking for Saul's father's donkey, Saul said to a servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And again, don't mean to be too harsh on Saul here, but I think it's, it's possible that he was just a little more willing to abandon the project. He certainly did listen to his dad. At least he was out there. But now draw the comparison with David in 1 Samuel 17. As David is now standing before Saul, the king, David loves this man because David delivered them from the, the Philistine, Goliath. And so Saul wants to give him a job. So in the process of getting that job, the interview kind of goes something like this. And then finally David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard, I struck it and I killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of Israel." And so David was just one of those people that when the flock was being attacked, he wasn't going to flee. He wasn't a hireling. He went right after the problem, and he took care of business. And unfortunately, Saul was not of that ilk. But I believe Saul had a relationship with the Lord. And I believe, in spite of what we're going to look at with the witch at Endor, I, I really believe that Saul is probably in heaven. There's some debate, and that's okay. Some people don't think he was a believer. Um, some people think he was. Um, I think it's very possible he's probably in glory. But that's, we don't have to worry and debate about that. But David had a great courage and a faith in the Lord and was obedient. And we're going to find that Saul wasn't quite that way. And so notice, at the end of verse 3 there, Saul's father says, Arise and go look for the donkeys. And this may seem like a simple command from a father to a son, but this was no chance meeting because as a result of this command to go and to look for the donkeys, Saul was going to encounter something completely different. He was going to be looking for donkeys that were lost, but what he was going to find was a kingdom. He was going to find a king and a kingdom in himself that God was going to a place upon him. And so it was no chance meeting. And I love what it says in Romans 8, 28, one of my favorite verses. We know that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purposes. That means if you love God, that everything that happens in your life will work together for good. And you may not know it now, something really horrible could happen to you. And you're thinking, why me, God? I'm one of your children. Why did you allow me to go through that horrible experience? And I think later on in life, he's going to make it click in our head. And, and after you minister to somebody, after you give your testimony, after whatever it is, ministering to somebody who went through the same thing, and then the Lord's going to say, remember when you had that question? Lord, why me? It's because of the 12 times that you've shared that with people who have been through the same thing. And you know how much that ministered to them? Because they saw you victorious on the other side of it, no longer wallowing in your pity, no longer uh, being completely dilapidated and despondent. No, you were a victor, more than a victor in Christ. And you were my lightning rod, and I used you in such a powerful way. But all things work together for the good. I love what it says in John chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus speaking, he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I find that being born again is one of the most wonderful things, not only because I know where I'm going, but also in everyday life. I find myself making decisions, prayerfully making decisions, even things that I don't even want to do, and I end up doing them. And in doing so, even almost against really what my heart wants to do, I find myself in a situation where I'm actually a help. 
to someone else, and I could never have ordered, orchestrated that in my own strength. Does that happen to you? I think it's happened to most of you, if not all of you, at several times in your life. Something happens. You're driving along the highway, and all of a sudden you're thinking everything's going great, and all of a sudden you get a flat tire, and it's the middle of February, and it's freezing. And somebody pulls over and helps you. And you're thinking, God, that, you know, it happened close to where you worked and, and a conversation strikes up and the person's like, how can, you be so, how can you be so okay about how this is happening? This is like the worst thing that could happen to you, or at least today anyway. Who is this? How, how do you, why, you know, who are you? I'm a believer in Christ. He loves you, by the way. And then you see somebody melt before your eyes. Was that a chance meeting or was that a divine appointment? Was that flat tire? Maybe there was an, you know, you just never can tell. And I love that. It's the way the Lord works. He works in mysterious ways. So don't ever underestimate those times when you are called to be someplace or find yourself doing something out of the ordinary only to realize that God has set you up for a divine appointment. I find that sometimes the the times that I'm mostly inconvenienced, the times that I don't want to be doing something, those are usually the times that God says, I want to do something with your life. Are you willing? And to be honest with you, there's times where I'm like, no, I'm really not willing, thank you very much. I want to have control over my own life. And God goes, but I thought you were one of mine. I thought you were bought with a price. Well, I am, but I still want to have my own rules. Still want to do my own thing. I still want to be top dog, right? And God goes, Well, you can if you'd like, but your life is not going to be nearly as exciting. Is there really anything more exciting than being led by the Lord when you do something? And it fits right in with what's going to happen here shortly. You don't even know why you're going. You're going and you find yourself doing some amazing thing, saying some amazing thing, encountering somebody, ministering to them. You didn't even woke up that morning. You didn't even know you are going to be there. And all of a sudden, you're on another part of the city doing something, and you're like, how did this happen? Strange change of events. And all we have to be is led by the Spirit of God. Led by the Spirit of God. And not digging our heels in and say, I will not do this because I'm late. Or I've got to do something. And maybe you have to be at work. You know, I mean, it's good to be at work, you know. But if it's your day off and you've got errands to do, and all of a sudden the Lord throws a wrench in the middle of your plans, of your, you know, your little list that you have, are you, are you so stringent? Are you so digging your heels in? I will not. And you know what? When we do that, we find ourselves shrinking like a raisin. Our faith shrinking like a raisin. And then we wonder why our experience in Christ Our experience as a Christian is not better than what it is. It's because I've dug my heels in so much that I no longer allow him to use me. But believe me, the more you are used by God, the greater your life is going to be. The more you allow God to use you, the greater purpose you're going to have. And is there any greater purpose? I mean, really, think about it. Some people go to their jobs day in and day out, and they hate their jobs. And they're getting paid really well for it, too. Six figures, seven figures a year, and they just hate their job. It's a prison to them. And yet God can give a Christian such great fulfillment and doing a small job. they just making ends meet, and yet their life is so rich. They're so used by God, and they're on fire. Let God use you more. Wake up and say, and I need to do this too. Wake up and say, Lord, today use me somehow. I don't care how you do it. You use me, whatever you do. I belong to you. You know what I got to do. You know I have a job to do. Within those confines, Lord, do whatever you want and help me to be willing and to take on those things that I normally wouldn't because it's just inconvenient. Sometimes the greatest worship service in your life is when you do something and you are not excited about it, you don't want to do it, and it's inconvenient. That's what they call a sacrifice. Isn't that not what worship is? It's never worship when it's easy for me. It's never worship when it's something I thought about in advance, but it's worship when it challenges me to get out of myself. It's real worship when it costs me something. So, verse 4, he passed through the mountains looking for his father's sheep, the mountains of Ephraim, 
and through the land of Shalisha, but they could not find them. They passed through the land of Shealim, and they were not there. Because remember, Saul of Gabeah, that Gabeah was where he lived uh, with, um, with his father Kish. And Samuel was just a little bit north, east of that in Ramah, just less than 10 miles northeast of uh, where Saul was. But there he is, he's passing through the land of the Benjamites, but he didn't find them. And then verse 5, when they had come to the land of Zuf, which Zuf is actually a town, it's not really known exactly where it is, but it's very close to Ramah. So they've been traveling for nearly 10 miles from where Saul was from. And Saul finally says to his servant, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And he said to him, Look, and the servant said to Saul, Look now, there is a city... In this city, there is a man of God, and he is an honorable man, and all he says will surely come to pass. So let us go there, and perhaps he can show us the way and the way that we should go. And it's interesting to me that Samuel, by this time, as an old man, is very popular in Israel. And yet, the land uh, or the, the town of Ramah, everybody in Israel would know that's where Saul li- or Samuel lives. That's where Samuel the prophet lives. And yet, there seems to be kind of a disconnect with Saul. His servants seemed to know about it, but Saul was kind of out to lunch. Maybe he was more of a hands-on guy, not very spiritual. I don't know what it was, but he didn't really know who Samuel was. In fact, we're going to learn as we go on that he meets him. He doesn't even know it's him until Samuel reveals himself to him. And so he seems to be oblivious to some spiritual things. So in verse 7 it says, Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And this was no doubt a custom in this time. And, you know, people mean well. People mean well. (laughs) But to bring a man of God, uh, you know, a prophet, a gift of some kind, I know that was probably just a custom, and and it was. There's no doubt about it. But we also see in it the unfortunate problem in the heart of man and his willingness to give in order to get something from God. You don't have to give God anything. Why did Jephthah make the rash vow that the first thing that he sees coming out of his house, he's going to sacrifice to the Lord? And what's the first thing he sees when he comes back from battle? His only daughter. I mean, give me a break. I think that's one time I would probably just say, you know what, Lord? I'm a fool. And the Lord will go, yeah, pretty much. I'm not going to kill her, Lord. I'm not going to sacrifice her. Forgive me. I think that's what I would do. But Jephthah was probably a more honorable man than I would be. There's a debate on what really happened there, so I don't want to get into that. But the thing is, we don't have to give to God to get something from him. He's done everything for us. We simply need to receive it. So we should never do something or give something to think that we can twist God's arm and get him to do something. What does it say in Ephesians 2? This is very important, folks. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift from God. It can never be of works. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do good enough. There's no amount of things I can give to God to somehow equal the scales. It's impossible. It's a fool's errand. Don't even try. And some people in the world, they want to have some stake in it. They want to say, I want to have some stake in my salvation. I'm not going to do this anymore, and I'm not going to do this. And and they bring out their list of things that they're going to do, and it's all humanism. It's all confidence in self, and God is saying, well, you just give it a break, because within five minutes of you coming to me, you're going to break all those things. You're going to fail on that you know, responsibility. You're going to fail on that. You're going to fail on that. And the things that you said back three weeks ago, that's not even going to happen. You already forgot about it. Hey, listen, don't even worry. Have a simple faith. You don't have to make vows to God. I've made them, and you have too. You don't need to do those things. But God initiates And he works even in spite of this. What does it say in Romans 5, verse 8? I love this verse. God commends his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Does that sound like we had to do something before he died for us? It's like we could make all these promises. Can you imagine seeing all of humanity standing before God and say, God, we'll make you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and we'll even toast it on both sides. If you just give us salvation, he's like, no, I don't want that. 
How about I do it for you? How about I do everything for you and all you do is receive? That's the stumbling block of humanity. People have a hard time receiving by grace through faith, realizing they have nothing to do with it. And even the faith that you have that God gave you to believe in him. So really, is there anything that we can boast in? No, he's given everything. He's given us the faith to even believe in him. and He's given us the, 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 the great grace of once we do believe in him, to live everlasting life, to have everlasting life. I don't know about you, but that is the best package. That's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's called good news. Nobody has good news like that. There is only one gospel. Amen? It is very good news. And I love what it says. You know, and, and notice that even before we're aware of the problem, God already had the solution. What does it tell us in Revelation 13, verse 8? It says, And all that dwell upon the earth, this is speaking of the, the, the time of the tribulation around the midpoint area, it says that all that dwell upon the earth shall worship the Antichrist, whose names were not written in the book of life, of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Are you kidding me? Does that mean that God, before the foundation of time, already had a rescue plan in place? Yes, that's exactly what it means. He knew, he knew exactly what was going to happen in the garden. Did it take him by surprise? Was he going, oh my gosh, I can't believe they messed it up again. What am I going to do? Oh, I know what I'll do. No, there was none of that. There was no wringing his hands. There was no freaking out. God just smiles and says, I, I've already, I already know what I'm going to do. In fact, I'm going to slay an animal, and it's going to be a foreshadowing, and I'm going to provide skins to cover you in your nakedness. And it's going to be a, a type, because a couple thousand years down the road, another son is going to give his life on the cross for you to cover your shame, to cover your sin. Hmm. Sounds like you put a lot of thought on that, Lord. Yeah, just a little bit. But notice... God spoke to Samuel. Samuel was going to speak exactly what God said. He certainly wasn't looking for a gift. Some ministers, because they're not paid very great, sometimes they're always looking for a bribe. They're looking for money, looking for ways to, to get money, and it's an unfortunate thing. And pray for pastors and, and, and teachers in our country and in the world that they would be true men of God and not men of gold that money wouldn't have an effect on them, that somebody could come into the church. I've seen this happen. I've heard of stories, and they're true stories, of somebody coming into the church who was a millionaire and says, you know what, I, I, you know, I, just gonna, I want to donate to the church and a whole new wing, and, and, and I want my name on it. That happened to a pastor. happened to Bill Gallatin, actually, when he first started. Some man was very wealthy, wanted to do some big thing, and there were strings attached to it. It wasn't just, but he wanted to make sure everybody knew about it. And he said, no, forget it. And I can imagine this board of elders going, what? He's like, no, you can keep your money. The Lord doesn't need it. And he did. He walked away from it. I love that, because that is wisdom, we cannot be bought, should not be bought, and neither was Samuel going to be bought. But notice in verse 8, back in our text, the servant answered Saul again and says, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. So you got to pay for directions? Now again, I think they mean well. Samuel wasn't looking for anything, but out of their heart and, and the custom was to do this. So, formerly in Israel, it says in verse 9, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer, for, who is now called, or for he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. So, in verse 10, Samuel, or excuse me, I keep um, doing Saul and Samuel. They sound so much alike, I keep getting them twisted. I'm probably going to listen to the recording and, and, and realize that I have juxtaposed and I have I've did some kind of ventriloquist act or... Uh, with uh, what's the word I want when, when you're dyslexic? I'm going to have all this dyslexia in the message. Um, <laughs> then Saul said to his servant, "Well said. Come, let us go." So they went to the city where the man of God was, and as they went up to the hill of the city, this the city we believe is Ramah, near Zuf. And so there they met some young women going out to draw water, and said to them, "Is the seer here?" And they answered them and said, yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Hurry, go, for today he came to the city because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. And the high places, you remember, were in, in times past, they would perform 
pagan idolatrous rites on these high places. They weren't really supposed to worship on those places. But if you remember back in chapter 4, the Philistines really, uh, it doesn't say it in the Bible, but we know that uh, that occurred around that time when the ark was taken from them in chapter 4 of this book, that they also destroyed Shiloh. And so maybe, it, maybe they didn't have a place. Maybe they had some of the vestments, and so they put them there. Don't really know too much, but it could be. So verse 13, as soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him, the, the young lady says, before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. So afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore, go up, for about this time you will find him. And it's amazing to see how much Samuel was respected and looked up to in the land of Israel, how people really looked up to him. And they looked up to him because, was he good-looking? Was he gifted and talented? Was he really tall and handsome? No, he was a faithful man. And you know, people want to put, they want to trust people. I mean, it is a snare. You have to be careful and to never trust in man. Trust in God. Remember, trust is something that is earned. I remember somebody telling me one time, they ripped me off and they did something, and, and then I says, well, I can't trust you. And they're like, but, but you're a Christian. You're supposed to trust everybody. And I'm like, oh, no. No, I don't have to trust anybody. In fact, the Bible tells me, trust not in man, rather trust in God. There's a lot of Proverbs about trusting in God rather than man. Trust is something that's earned, isn't it? It is. It's earned. And the more trustworthy a person is, the more you're willing to give to them. The more you're willing to give your heart to them, to understand that, hey, this is someone I can really count on because I've seen them every single time they've been faithful. And that's important for us to do as Christians. May people look at us that way to where people could say, you know what? He's not the, not the most handsome guy in the world, but when he, says, he, when he says something, he means it, and if he can't do it, he'll, he'll be honest. and he'll, you know, He's not trying to pull my leg and be deceitful. He's obedient. He's honest. And I like that. Don't you like being around people like that? What they say is what they mean, and what they mean is what they say. It's so refreshing. There's no hidden agendas. There's no doors behind, you know, you know a, a glass, you know, like when you go into those glass of house of mirrors and the, when you go to the circus. You know, you're looking around, you see them there, but they're really over there. You have no idea what's going on. I like the, to look at somebody and you know exactly what you're getting. When I'm along, going along 490 and I look up and I see the golden arches, I know exactly what to expect. I know what they sell. I don't even need to look at the menu. I can say double quarter pounder with cheese, please, and a large fry and a Coke. Verse 14, so they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear, I love this about the Lord. He spoke to him the day prior, and this is what the Lord said. He said to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander excuse me, over my people, excuse me, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come unto me. This word commander is Nagid. We know that the Messiah, the Prince, Mashiach, Nagid, it's the same kind of thing. He's going to be the head over the people, a king. And notice that he, and here's the purpose of Saul. This was God's purpose for Saul. Notice what it says in verse 16 in the middle of the verse, that he may serve my that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. That was his goal. That was God's understanding of his ministry. That's what he was to do. He says, "For I have looked upon my people because of their cry has come to me." And why would God say something like that? To save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Why was that his purpose? Because his people were crying to him. They were crying to him. In Psalm 86, verse 15, it says, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion, gracious, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy and truth. And these are all characteristics of God that are wonderful. And God, because of the cry of his people, And he's doing the same thing here that he did during the time of the judges. Isn't that exactly what he did? When they 
fell into sin, they got oppressed by their enemies, God would raise up a deliverer, deliver them, there'd be a great awakening, they'd love it, and then they'd get, they'd get lazy again, fall back into sin again, and the whole thing would just keep going. It was just a, a vicious cycle. And so God is doing the same thing. They're at the place where the Philistines are continuing, continuing to just oppress them, and God was going to use Saul because the people's cry came up into his ears. Is God so mean that he's just like, you know what, I'm done with you? You know, there is a time when God will judge. There's no doubt about that. But even in his judgment, there's mercy and there's grace in it. But God is almost like beside himself when his people are crying out to him. Are you crying out to him? Are you crying out to him for the the betterment of our country, the things that we're involved in right now? Are you crying out to him? Say, Lord, you got to fix this. Will you please fix this? He's doing the same thing here. And it just so happened that the next deliverer, the next judge, even though they would call him a king, would be Saul. And Samson had a similar calling on his life. Remember what, um, when the Lord appeared before Manoah's wife? What did she say to, to her about her son Samson that would be born to her? He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So now Saul is inheriting what was left over from Samson and all those, all those line of judges. He's inheriting it, and we're not going to finally see the full end to the Philistines, their, their oppression in, in, in a major way, until David comes on the scene. And David's going to finally finish the job. It doesn't mean that every single one is going to be gone, but they're no longer going to be a problem for Israel ever again after David is done. But Saul didn't quite finish the job. He didn't finish the job. We see in areas, and we'll see it as we go along, Saul was just a coward. He wasn't a brave man. He stood before the armies of the Philistine, and as Goliath would come out every day just taunting them, I mean, think about it. He was the guy who was taller than anybody else. And Saul would have been better to just say, you know what, I'm going to take this guy on. Lord, save them. This is what you put me in this position for. And you know what, I wonder what would have happened. History might have been different if Saul said, you know what? I'm going to take the head off that uncircumcised Philistine. But those weren't his words. Those were David's words. A young man who was much smaller than, I'm sure when he looked up at Saul, you know, he's just a young teenage boy, but boy, was he good with a sling and a rock. And he, they tried to put the armor on him. I mean, and it just doesn't work. And David's like, you know what? I, I don't know any of this stuff, but one thing I do know is I know God is on my side, and I trust in him, and I, this is the only thing I know. And then there's this armor bearer coming out, and then Saul, or you know, Goliath behind him, and David runs. Again, I can't wait to get the replay on that, the slow motion replay. I want to see it where David just wings back and in slow motion, just the expression on his face, the veins coming out of his neck, just in, and just lets it rip and just smacks Saul square in the forehead, down like a brick. I want to see it in 4K high fidelity. <laughs> so verse 17, so when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, there he is. The man whom I spoke to you, this one shall reign over my people. And God was going to give Saul to the people because that's what they asked for. And even though Saul was Israel's first king, his kingdom was not to last. And why is that? You remember that what happened after Saul, then there came David, and then after David came Solomon. And what happened after Solomon's reign? The, 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 the monarchy split into two different things, the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and the northern ten tribes. And the northern ten tribes were taken over by a man named Jeroboam. And what does it say in 1 Kings eleven twenty six 26 about Jeroboam? Was he a man of, of Judah? No, he was a man of Ephraim. And you'll, you'll see my point here in just a minute. But it says in 1 Kings eleven twenty six, 26, And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephrathite of Zerida, Solomon's servant. So this man wasn't even from the line of Judah. He was from the line of Ephraim. And you may be going, what's your point? Well, the first three kings of the northern ten tribes were... Jeroboam, he was from Ephraim. His son, Nadab, he was from Ephraim. And then Baasha, the third one, he was from the tribe of Issachar. But we have a problem. Because what, what did Jacob say on his deathbed? 
It's recorded for us in Genesis 49, verse 10. It says the scepter, he's speaking of Judah now. Remember, Jacob is on his deathbed, and he's given all of his 12 sons, basically prophesying over them. And what does he say to Judah? He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, which is a reference of Jesus, till Shiloh come, and unto him shall all the gathering of the people be. So the scepter is a right to rule. A scepter is that, that rod that is held out, that Ahasuerus held out to Esther to allow her to approach him. It has power. There's meaning behind that. It's the right to rule. It is uh, for many things, but it's a mark of authority. And it was through the line of Judah. Judah, not Ephraim. And yet God gave Jeroboam the same promise, if you will obey me, I'll prosper you. And your kids and your kids after them, I'll bless them all if you obey me. And what happened? Jeroboam made the golden calf, put one up in Dan where we visit when we go to Israel. We visit that altar there. And he put another one down in Bethel. And he was the worst. And ever since then, the, the northern ten tribes never, ever recovered. They were always evil. Every single king was evil. Not one single king from the northern ten tribes was good. So then Saul, verse 18, drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? Saul, or excuse me, Saul didn't even know who Samuel was. Hey, can you tell me where the seer is? Um, you're looking at him. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you what is all in your heart. I love that. It's amazing that Saul had no idea who Samuel was, and yet he lived only like 10 miles away from him. But as for your donkeys, Samuel said to Saul, but as for your donkeys that were lost, oh, by the way, three days ago, how'd you know that? Hmm, the Lord must have spoken to him. Hmm. The donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't worry about them. Don't be anxious about them, for they've been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and all your father's house? And the thing that was really on the mind of Saul during this whole trip is, where's my father's donkeys? And Samuel now just tells him, oh, by the way, don't worry about the donkeys. They've been found. And I can imagine, oh, thank God. I got something more important to tell you. going to talk to you. Something the Lord showed me, told me to tell you. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Remember at the end of Judges, the, the, the tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out completely because of their shenanigans. And so they were really small. And now Saul is like the smallest of his father's tribe. So Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought him to, into the hall and had him sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. And there were about 30 persons. So this was a great honor for Saul to be held in honor by Samuel. And you would sit up there in the prominent place there at the feast. And that's where they put him and his servant. And this is a really big deal. And so I imagine Saul is starting to think, what's going on here? Don't quite know what's going on here. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here it is, what was kept back. It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you, since I said I invited the people. And so Saul ate with Samuel that day. And this was interesting because this was all prearranged. And how could it be prearranged? Because God spoke to Samuel the day before. He told him exactly what was going to happen, how it was going to happen. So Saul, or Samuel, excuse me, as a good man, as a good prophet, says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey God. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And that's exactly what he did. And the right thigh was a, a very great piece of the, of the sacrifice that would normally be given to uh, Levi and his sons, the sons of Aaron. You can read about that in Leviticus 7, verse 32 and 33. But it's amazing uh, even how at the Last Supper, Jesus put Judas as the guest of honor among the group. He was seated immediately to Jesus' left, to right to the left of him at the table, and Saul, or Samuel, does the same thing with Saul. He puts him in this place of prominence. Verse 25, so when they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on top of the house, which was his house, uh, Samuel's house. And so they arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day, so they stayed overnight there with a, a stomach full of 
really good meat. And he knows the donkeys are found. So Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And so Saul arose, and both of them, the Saul and his servant, they went outside, and he, uh, he and Samuel. And the last verse here, it says, And they, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on ahead. But you stay here a while, that I may announce to you the word of the Lord. And we're going to stop there tonight, um, but we're going to look at chapter uh, 10, because we're going to take communion. But it's going to be interesting that God is going to, um, he's going to anoint Saul. He's going to ask Samuel to anoint Saul. God knew exactly what, he, what the people wanted. He was going to give it to them. And it's going to be really uncomfortable as we read chapter 10 because uh, I hear Samuel rehearsing before the people in front of Saul the behavior of a king. And that's exactly what Saul did. God knew in advance exactly what this king would do. Can you imagine sitting there hearing that and thinking to yourself, well, that's not going to be me, that's not going to be me, that's not going to be me. And then after a few years, you're like, oh my gosh, that's, I did that. It's kind of unfortunate. <laughs> Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to take communion. Actually, if uh, Arby, you want to come up, and um, what I'd like to do is let's pray, and Aubrey's going to sing and worship. And then while she's uh, while we're worshiping, feel free to come up and grab um, a cup. It's one of those ones that are sealed. Okay. And bring it back to your chair, and then uh, once you, um, once we're done worshiping, we'll take it together. Okay. <laughs>